All right, guys, let me pull you back together. <clears throat> if you don't mind, and we'll hop into um, our week seven content here. If you need some more coffee, go get it. We got plenty, as you know. And why don't I? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray one more time as we as we dive into a teaching time. Uh, Lord, we love you, and uh, just once again, we want to hear from you. We want to we want to um, have hearts that are that are softened and open to what you might want to say to us. Uh, we want to be men of the word. We want to be men who who um, live our lives for for your kingdom and not our own. And so, uh, would you would you use what we see in these passages, Lord, to to deepen that in our in our lives to to help that become more of a reality. Um, so thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross and guide our time. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, as always, want to want to begin with just a quick overview of uh, narratively what's going on here. We're Acts 20 and 21. And in these passages, we see Paul finish up his, his third and in some ways you could even call it his final missionary journey. So uh, if, you, if you read the whole thing, you know there in chapter 21, he is arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, that, as the chains are put around his wrists, he will never be released from captivity. So he, he is about, we'll read the rest of his story here uh, in the coming weeks, but he is about to begin a, a long journey where, where he'll end up in Rome as he has appealed to Caesar uh, to be released from, from his, his chains. Um, but there in Rome, he'll get swept up in some persecution and end up losing his life. So uh, he is finishing up his, I mean, and this is so significant. He's finishing up his missionary work. Paul, the greatest church planner, the, one of the greatest missionaries to ever exist, this man that God used right here at the beginning to push the gospel into, uh, into Europe, into uh, modern-day Turkey in such powerful ways, uh, his ministry is coming to a close in, in a big sense. Now, interestingly, though his work of establishing churches is going to close, uh, what begins is his writing work, you know, not being able to go visit these churches. He begins to write a lot of letters to them. Holy Spirit ordained that and, and um, intended that. And, and that's how we get, you know, a good portion of our New Testament is writings from Paul to these churches that he, that he uh, established. And so um, God continues to use him as a powerful uh, tool even in his captivity. But, uh, but just be aware. So, so all that to be said, he's, uh, he starts in... Uh, it's at the end of Ephesus, like his, his time in Ephesus, if you are, are tracking him going out. Um, the riot happened last week, that was chapter 19, but in chapter 20 he begins to move north, goes into Macedonia, he's visiting a lot of churches he's been to. He's intending to go to, you can sort of sense that he's trying to get Jerus to Jerusalem by uh, Passover, he wants to celebrate the resurrection in Jerusalem. Um, he's, he's not able to do that, uh, his, his plan of going by sea, from you know Corinth, that area uh, falls apart. You read that, so he ends up traveling by land. He ends up getting on a boat and sort of hugging the, the coast of Turkey there for a while. But um, uh, 18 different cities, I think, are mentioned if I counted properly. Um, so he's he's just on the road. This whole uh, passage that we read is is him journeying to Jerusalem with some anecdotes along the way. Um, we do know that his trip to Jerusalem has this very noble desire. He's he's carrying a large financial gift. You didn't read that in Acts, but we can pick up on that in some of the epistles um, that these churches he's been attending have, have uh, he's, he's pleaded with them to make donations and they have made donations for the church in Jerusalem. So the church in Jerusalem was facing a famine. 
and uh, there was a lot of poverty playing out in, in their region. And so uh, Paul has uh, you know, persuaded the Gentile church to invest financially and to be generous towards the church in Jerusalem, which I think is a really beautiful thing. Commentators, spec- he never, Paul never writes why he was doing this. I mean, there's, there's obvious reasons of Christian charity and love, um, but a lot of commentators and, and biblical scholars will sort of speculate that Paul here is trying to heal that rift that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, that, that, you know, Acts 15 that we studied a few weeks ago in sort of the, the Jerusalem council, there's a, there's a frustration among Jewish Christians about Paul and Gentile Christians abandoning the law, abandoning Moses, abandoning circumcision. They're trying to figure out, you know, what, what from the Old Covenant, what from the Old Testament applies to Christians today. And, and it, this, was, this was a really challenging issue that created a lot of tension between Jews and Gentiles. Um, and so I think Paul is, is sort of doing this journey and, and bringing this financial gift to try and heal the divide uh, that, that exists. He's, he's trying to promote Christian unity, which I think is a really noble aim, one that we should all give ourselves to. But, uh, but that's, that's what he's up to. All, all this, uh, this whole passage, he's traveling to Jerusalem. He eventually gets there where he is arrested. Third missionary journey comes to an end. Um, let's look real quickly at our themes. As always, we got the same five. Uh, work of the Holy Spirit, he definitely shows up uh, in this passage, I think, three big ways this miracle of the Holy Spirit, this resurrection of Eutychus, the guy who fell asleep during Paul's really long sermon. Uh, I know there's a lot of punchlines we could, we could go to there with, with long sermons at Emmaus, um, but, uh, but we'll, we'll just dodge that completely. But uh, this miracle of, of the resurrection that happens there. Some people say, well, was he really resurrected? Did he really die? Luke is there, and Luke is writing this narrative, and Luke is a doctor and a physician, and he says he fell over as... As to, and was taken up dead. So I take his word for it. I think what played out here was uh, the Holy Spirit working through Paul to bring this young man back to life, uh, which is a clear miracle. You also see the Holy Spirit um, explicitly in verse 22. I really like this. Look at this if you don't mind in your, in your text. Um, Paul explains why he's so wanting to go to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. You know, so once again, we're seeing the Holy Spirit is providing leadership to Paul as he's going about his missionary work. We saw this big time when he was starting the second journey. And remember, he wanted to go to Ephesus and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. And he tried to go up to uh, northern Turkey and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. So the Holy Spirit still is leading Paul in his, in his work. Um, he's constrained by the Spirit to get to Jerusalem. There's, there's this, uh, th- th- this burden on his heart, um, which I think we all know what that feels like when, when the Holy Spirit is really convicting us of something. And maybe we're not hearing it audibly. Um, maybe Paul even wasn't hearing it audibly, but he's, he's constrained. He's, he's burdened. He's bound by some leading he's sensing from God. So there's the Holy Spirit again. You also see it uh, with these prophecies that show up in chapter 21. As he's appro- approaching Jerusalem, people are telling him, the Holy Spirit has said what awaits you is chains, and, and I'm not sure you should go then. And, and uh, he goes anyways because um, the Holy Spirit has called him to. So um, see a lot of Holy Spirit there. Witnessing for Christ absolutely happening in all these cities that Paul is going to. Um, you can kind of feel, though, um, that Paul, there's a difference between Paul when he first arrives to a city and he's you know, witnessing and in the synagogues and, and proclaiming Christ versus now when he's revisiting the cities. Did, did you notice, like again and again, you're, you're catching words like he encourages the disciples and he teaches the disciples. So there's, I love that because it sort of shows the two sides of ministry work. There's 
frontline evangelism, uh, pioneer work where you're trying to uh, plant the gospel in people's hearts and plant the gospel in cities. And then there's uh, ministering pastoral work where you're, where you're trying to strengthen and, and equip them. Um, he does both. Um, but yeah, witnessing happens. Development of the church. A lot of good stuff here on this one. Uh, I actually built most of our teaching time around this, sort of some glimpses that we see of, of how the church was operating at that time, what the office of eldering looked like, what the office of pastor looked like, what the, um, what the worship of the church looked like. So we'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. But um, history of salvation, not too much here. Uh, maybe the only thing I saw was chapter 21 when Paul is willing to go along with these uh, did you notice this, the purification rituals? Like he gets to Jerusalem and James is like, hey man, there's a lot of Jews who don't like you. Uh, they're, they're claiming you're abandoning the law. They're abandoning Moses. Um, why don't, here's an idea. Why don't you go through these, the purification rituals with these four men under the vow and then they'll know, no, you still honor Moses' law. The, the, the purification rituals were, were uh, they're all listed out there in, in uh, Leviticus and Numbers, uh, rules for the people of God to cleanse themselves when they had uh, touched something unclean. Um, so Paul, and Paul was glad to go through this, uh, which is really interesting to me. Why? Because he's been accused of abandoning Judaism and he's willing to go through some hoops to say, no, I haven't abandoned the Bible. I haven't abandoned the scriptures. I haven't abandoned Moses. I'm walking in fulfillment of them. He's trying to persuade these Jews to see Christ as the true Messiah and the true um, uh, this is a missional aspect of his life. But yeah, he's connecting Jesus with the Old Testament there. That's, that's that theme. And then evangelization of the nations, plenty of that to go around for sure. Um, so uh, let's jump into some teaching time. Um, I, I, I want to tee up sort of the, the analogy I want to use for, for this, uh, this, this moment with this. It's uh, sports season. Anybody, anybody have kids who are playing sports right now? Um, so it's spring and this is one of the first seasons we've had where all of our kids are all doing something. And in fact, uh, our girls are doing two things. So Hudson's playing baseball. Emmy and Ella are both doing soccer. So they have two soccer teams, not on the same team. And then they're both doing dance as well. So like every night of the week, there's something. Wednesday's the only night where there's nothing. Um, and that's MC night. So our lives are a little bit chaotic at this moment, but it's a lot of fun. And my favorite part of it is going to the ball field and watching the sunset over, you're all nodding your head, so you've seen this before. Uh, if you're not in this season yet, if you have young kids, you're going to get there. It's glorious. Um, when you have this, you know, all the trees have been cut down and this big wide swath, you catch, you know, when it's, when it's sunset time, you catch these amazing views of just the, the gradient sky, all the colors changing as it goes. I snapped this picture. This is from last fall. I haven't taken one from the spring yet, but... Um, but just, I mean, I didn't edit this at all. This is just a picture of the sky. But it was, a, it was glorious, amazing, uh, a beautiful vista where you can just sort of take in God's glory. Um, in many ways, as I was trying to think about how to teach this, this passage, I think that that's a good analogy to use to um, explain why I love this passage so much. I think we catch a glorious glimpse of the church in chapter 20 specifically. There's a lot going on here. I want to focus on 20 because I think the Lord is showing us big things about how he designed his church to operate, what it looks like for his church to be led by elders, what elders are supposed to do, what faithful pastors are supposed to do, what the worship of the church looks like. So three glimpses that I see of, uh, of the church, God's glory in the midst of it. First one, worship of the church. Um, this one is 
really zooming in in chapter 20 on this story about uh, Eutychus, this guy who's, who's raised from the dead. But I want to show you he dies in the midst of a church service. So this isn't just a random night where Paul is randomly teaching. Look, look at verse 7 of chapter 20. It says, On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, uh, when we were gathered together to break bread. This is the church there gathering for worship. This is them gathering to, uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to hear the Word preached. This is a church service. And I love it because we caught some glimpses of church services back at the beginning of Acts, but this is like normative church in the city of Troas. Um, so uh, uh, some disciples have been established there. Paul appears to be stuck there for seven days before his ship can move on uh, to the next spot. Um, but Sunday comes around, and what do they do? They gather together. They, they prioritize this. The church, the early church, was committed to weekly gatherings, uh, and these happened on Sundays, which I actually think is, is uh, I just want to acknowledge that as a really powerful apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but for 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years, uh, well, no, the Sabbath was instituted with Moses. So for about 2,000 years, the Jewish people celebrated worship on what day? Saturday. Their Sabbath was Saturday. In fact, it's still Saturday today. The Jews who do not follow Jesus, Orthodox Jews, if you go to Israel, Sabbath is when synagogue happens on, on, on Saturdays there in Israel. So what caused it to move to Sunday? The resurrection. What provoked the, the Christian people to begin to gather and, and reflect on Jesus on the first day of the week. It was the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, this is, it, it's unfathomable. Like, it would be the same in our day if we all started worshiping on Monday. Something would have to cause the church to change the day significantly. So, you know, regardless of whether or not people believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the evidence of the behavior of the church and the people who were there at the time points us to the fact that something huge happened that caused them to change. And we know, if you, if you remember from the beginning parts of Acts, they still, the early church, they were still Jews. They didn't consider themselves to be something new. They still went to synagogue and the temple on Saturday, but then they also on Sunday gathered for this special breaking of bread. They gathered to remember the cross. They gathered to remember the resurrection. They gathered to take the Lord's Supper as, as God had instructed them. And that's what we see here. So uh, three quick things, three parts of this worship service. I want to show you first preaching. Uh, Paul preaches. It says he talked with them, uh, verse 7, and it prolonged until midnight. Um, I was reading some commentaries trying to figure out like just how long was this sermon that he preached. Uh, when did they start gathering? And you know, for us, we think, oh, morning. Church happens in the morning. Uh, for them, it probably didn't. So Sunday for them was a work day. Uh, it was not a weekend for them. It was the first day of the week. It was like Monday for them. So uh, they were probably working. So this probably began 6, 7 p.m. at night. They gathered together for, for this time of teaching and to, to break bread together. Um, so likely this sermon was five or six hours, which, you know, again, we can joke uh, about the sermon length here. We can certainly rag on Paul. Uh, but I think, I think there's a valid question here. Should this be done? You know, is this prescriptive? Is this passage telling us that we should have five to six hour sermons in churches? And you're all shaking your heads. I, I, I agree. No, I don't think it's telling us we have to have that. But I do, I, I don't think even Anson would say it needs to be five or six hours. But I do think it exemplifies something that should exist, which is a deep commitment to the Word of God in, in the church. Um, you know, we, maybe you've felt this before here. We have long sermons here. Maybe you've left on a Sunday and been like, oh my gosh, that was an hour and 24 minute sermon. That's as long as a movie. My kids could have watched the entirety of The Lion King during that sermon. Uh, and maybe there's even frustration in your heart towards that. Um, I, I just want to 
maybe maybe your wife complains or, or something like that. Maybe maybe other people in, in your and, and it's easy to rag uh, our church and rag Anson and rag the other preaching pastors of which I'm one about how long we preach. But I will I will challenge you with a thought, and that thought would be, we give our time to a lot of things that are less worthy than the Word of God through the week. And an hour and 20 minutes, even an hour and 30 minutes, even two hour, I'm not saying that's happening, but I'm just saying, even if God appointed a two hour simmering in the Word of God, would that be so bad? You know, yeah, there's, there's a good thing that has always defined the church from the very beginning, which is coming together to think about the Lord and to focus and meditate on, his, on the Scriptures through this sacred thing called preaching that God's ordained to keep us. So let's be men of the Word. Let's be people who lead our families this way and make sure we're not you know, just throwing time at television and, and games and, and, and silliness in our lives, but making sure that in our homes, in our churches, that the Word of God is, is central. Um, they were so committed that this guy, you know, uh, falls asleep and dies, which I think gives us a pass. You know, if you're tired in church and you fall asleep, people fell asleep to Paul. They can fall asleep to Anson. Like, it, it's going to happen sometimes. Uh, and hey, Paul did a quick resurrection and, and the service carried on. Um, second thing we see in this church service, communion. The Lord's Supper is taken here. Uh, it's referred to as the breaking of bread. Uh, this is a vital, indispensable part of the church. It's been around since the beginning, y'all. Uh, perhaps you're, you're newer to our church and you think to yourself, why do they do the Lord's Supper every week? They're actually diminishing, perhaps you've had this thought, they're diminishing the value of communion by, by doing it every week. We're becoming casual with it. It's, it's, it's like the, the sacredness of it is lost when you do it only, only once. We should do it, uh, or when you do it weekly, we should do it maybe quarterly or something like that to, to heighten the seriousness of the moment. I understand the thought there, but I would point to the Bible where you see modeled a, a consistent... Uh, practicing of the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. The, the church uh, valued this moment. And if you read early church writings from uh, outside the Bible that we get like in the early 2nd century, you actually kind of get some uh, analysis and descriptions of how the services played out. Y'all, the Lord's Supper was like half of the service. They would have their preaching time for like an hour, hour and a half, and then they would have the Lord's Supper time for like an hour, an hour and a half. They'd have prayer, they'd break bread together, they'd eat at tables. I mean, it was a significant moment for them where they communally remembered Christ together. So maybe we need longer services, maybe we need to expand this in our day, I don't know. Um, but communion is a, is a clear part of, uh, of, of the glory of the church that God's given to us. Last thing I would say is fellowship. Um, you know, after this, this death happens at midnight, um, it says that they kept conversing you know, until daybreak. They're just, and it's a different word than the first word, teaching, you know, so Paul's not preaching anymore, but he's hanging out, and the church is gathering for fellowship, which I just think is another indispensable part of what church is. We're not meant to be anonymous, you know, people in the church setting. You know, perhaps you've gone to a big church where nobody knows you, and the pastors don't know you, and and there's some comfort in that because you can just sort of remain hidden, but that's not the vision that we see in the Bible of church. We're, We're meant to be known. We're meant to have community and fellowship and, and sort of this, uh, the, the fun conversing uh, moments that you would have with friends. I mean, we've probably all experienced staying up into the late hours uh, when we're hanging out with friends and, and just having that sweet fellowship that happens. That's supposed to exist within the church, uh, uh, deep community. Um, we got 10 minutes, so I'm going to speed up here. Glimpse number two, pastoring of the church. I, I'm moving on to this passage about uh, the Ephesian elders. When Paul calls these elders from Ephesus to him, he wants to talk to them one last time. He'll never see them again. 
and he, uh, he gives them a charge. But in the midst of it, uh, this is one of the only places in the Bible where Paul gives this autobiographical glimpse of how he went about pastoring. He's describing uh, what he did during his ministry. And, and I think as he does so, he's giving us a really beautiful glimpse of how pastoring should work in the church. So five characteristics he shows us here. First, humility. Uh, he led with humility. He, verse 19 says he served with all humility before them, which is great. Paul bragged about being humble, right? Uh, that, that, that classic challenge there. Um, but he is showcasing this is an important part of his ministry. He, he wasn't building his own kingdom. He was building the Lord's. He was leading as Jesus taught his disciples to lead by washing of feet and by serving. Not, you know, don't lead like the Pharisees do by lording it over uh, their people. Lead, lead by serving. Uh, do as I have done. That, that's how Jesus taught his disciples to lead, and, and Paul exemplified that with true humility. I also think he led with sincerity. I love this. He says in verse 19 that he served with tears. Uh, and then in verse 31, he says, For three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. So twice he acknowledges this fact that he cried a lot to these people in Ephesus, which is interesting. Right? Like, do we, do we want weepy pastors? Is the point here we're supposed to have these emotional, you know, pastors who just cry a lot? I don't think so. I think, I think what Paul's getting at is that he's sincere. He, he, he wasn't just putting on a show with them. He wasn't trying to uh, impress them. This, this wasn't just a job for him. He, with his whole heart, was invested in the work, sincerely. So much so that as he would plead with them over serious issues, he'd cry. You know, there, uh, there's a great pastor, I'm forgetting his name, but he says... Um, he says, any rebuke should be given with tears. You know, if you're going to speak truth with love, if you have a harsh word to say, if you're really loving about it, it should, it should bring you to tears. I think Paul was that kind of man. You know, he, he led with, with sincerity. Uh, I also see courage. Again and again in the passage, um, he says he did not shrink back from declaring to them what is true. How many of you have felt that feeling when you know you should say something to your spouse, to your kids, to a friend? You've got something. You see something. You want to say something, but you just shrink back. You lack the courage. You lack the. Uh, you're worried about the effects of that conversation, so you, you hold back. Paul didn't do that. He he declares himself innocent of the blood because he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God to them. He wasn't a people pleaser. He was he was courageous and and fearless at. Uh, admonishing. He, he wasn't a jerk. You know, he did it with tears, but, but he, was, he was a courageous man. Fourth one here, he, he was faithful. He led with faithfulness. I love verse 24. I think this is so good. This should be all of our life verse. He says, I do not count, uh, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His goal was to be faithful. He just wanted to be obedient to the Lord. He wasn't trying to build this great life for himself, this great name for himself. He just was trying to be faithful. He had the right priorities for his life. I, I think we have a lot to learn there uh, for sure. Number five, he was diligent. He was a hard worker. He was not lazy. He was not looking to slack off. He wasn't trying to fa- find the path of least resistance, you know, the easiest way to get it done. He, he worked hard. He, he said uh, in verse 34 and 35, he says, I, I've shown you by working hard in this way how, how you ought to lead. He says he, he taught in public and he taught from house to house. He admonished them night and day for three years. So, um, and, and we know from other places in the Bible that he did all this while also finding time to care for his own needs. He built tents to provide. He wasn't taking a salary during all this. So um, his goal clearly was not to be wealthy, not to be comfortable. He just gave his life for this work. He was willing to sacrifice comfort and, and, uh, and, and 
easy life to have this diligent, uh, faithful service to the Lord. What a glorious glimpse of a pastor, right? Like this is very convicting to me as a, as a minister myself. Um, but I think it's, it's a glimpse of, of, of glory that, that's meant to help us worship the Lord because this is, this is what He's designed for us. This is what He's created for us to enjoy uh, men who lead us like this. Um, and in and, and all the ways we uh, fail, we certainly try to live up to this as, as your pastors for sure. Um, but a glorious glimpse to behold. Third one here. Last one, uh, a glimpse of the eldership of the church. God has charged elders to care for his flock. He loves this church. He spilt his own blood for her. It says in verse 28, he's given a gift to her by which she will be well cared for, well protected, by which she'll endure unto the end, and that is having elders to watch over her. Um, and if, if I think we just have one elder in the room, Bill Burke, if you guys don't know Bill, he's, he's one of our six elders over us at Emmaus. Um, so lots for you, Bill, in this passage, um, to be sure. But I think, I think, honestly, there's a lot for all of us in this passage as we, as we see what's going on with the elders here. Um, I think, first, it's really good for all of us to see God's plan for caring for us. I think it causes us to worship Him even more when we think about how good He is to create these systems of oversight for the body. Um, but secondly, I think there's, there's wisdom to be gleaned for all of us in our own areas of leadership in our life. You know, if you're a husband, if you're a father, if you're a, a leader in your workplace, if you're a, a spiritual leader in our church, MC leader, kids ministry leader, any, any of these things, um, you know, there's, there's wisdom about how to lead people well in the way Paul describes this. So, so real quick, five things he's called elders to do from this passage. Number one, they're to pay careful attention to themselves. Um, you see that in verse 38. They must lead themselves. They must carefully inspect their own lives, find parts in them, find any parts in them that are inconsistent with holiness, inconsistent with godliness, and, and correct them if they're going to lead well. Before he says, pay careful attention to the flock, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Make sure if there's weeds of sin popping up in your life that you rip them up before they become trees. You guys know how sin works. It starts small, but it goes big, always. It never, sin does not relent. The, the, the kitty cat does not become you know, a, a, a tamed, easy animal. It's a, it's a lion that will kill you. And James teaches us this. Sin brings forth death. Um, and that's true of all of us. Elders are sheep too. God's the chief shepherd. But elders and pastors, they're sheep just as well. They have sin problems too, and they have to pay careful attention to themselves, to each other, to make sure that they guard their hearts, guard their soul, um, that they lead well as a result. Second thing, pay careful attention to the flock. You know, pay, uh, carefully oversee the flock that Jesus has died for. You know, the primary role of elders is not financial oversight. The primary role of elders is not staff management. The primary role of elders is not overseeing property and overseeing buildings. It's caring for the flock. Now, these, all these things are important. You know, they're the, the chief uh, layer of accountability for us. They should be keeping an eye on all parts of the church. But, but God has designed elders to, to keep watch over our souls, to share lives, inspect themselves, inspect us, and to speak to us when they see problems. You know, the, the watchfulness here is for purpose. It's, it's for correcting problems when they exist. When you see disease, when you see uh, predators coming uh, to, to step up and say something, to look for the sheep that are limping, to look for the sheep that are missing, to leave the 99 to go find the one. I mean, that's, that's the, the imagery here, shepherding oversight over the flock. Uh, third one, serious sobriety before God. Uh, and that's basically two words that mean the same thing. And what I mean is they're to be deathly serious about what God has called them to. Um, he says in the midst of this Holy Spirit-inspired charge that, that uh, Paul is giving to these elders, he says, uh, you know, care, care for the flock, 
which God has obtained by His own blood. He's reminding them how serious this calling is. God bought the church with His blood. Which, notice the Trinitarian language there. It says God bought the church with His blood. That's Jesus' blood. Paul there is, is absolutely equating Jesus with God. Um, but the point is clear. This is a precious flock to God. He loves His church. So don't, this isn't a casual thing. This isn't an HOA presidency where you're just having some power and, and overseeing it. This is, this is God's flock. He bought her. Care for her well. You know, that's, that's the image there. Fourth thing, protect from wolves. I'm sure you saw this language, but verse 29, Paul warns that fierce wolves will arise. They'll lead sheep away through these twisted words. So we're talking about false teaching, manipulative teaching. They're going to look, they're not going to look like wolves. They're dressed in sheep's clothing, but they, they say things that sort of twist the gospel, twist what's important, pull you away from the Lord. Um, and elders are to protect in those moments. And do they protect by killing the wolves? Is that what Paul says? No, he says, be alert and admonish day and night with tears. You know, so the, the weapons of our warfare are not uh, to attack these wolves. There's, there's no you know, grounds here for, for pastors or elders to be abusive or hateful to uh, people who are harming the church. Instead, it's uh, this spiritual admonishment, this teaching, using the Word of God, using, using sincere hearts to uh, protect people from this harm. Um, and then last one here. Hold fast to God in the Word. He says in verse 32, and now, this is his ending, now I commend you to God and to His Word, the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You know, Paul knew what the church needed, and they needed the Word of God. They needed God in the Word. They didn't need Him. He's not going to see them again, but he entrusts the church to the Lord and to the Word of God. Which family, that's what we have today. We don't have Paul anymore. We don't have the original 12. We, we, we have the Word of God. We have, uh, we have God Himself. And it's, we're still able to be built up uh, because of those things. So, be men of the Word. Be husbands of the Word. Be fathers of the Word. Be leaders of the Word. Be men committed to these things. This is how we grow. This is how God's called us to grow. Um, that's everything. And it is 7 o'clock on the dot. So, let me pray for us. Lord, we love You. Lord, help us to uh, love Your church. If we're not members of Your church, Lord, help us to to become them, Lord, help us to see the glory that you've created in this thing called the church um, that you've designed to be a protection and a benefit to our lives. Lord, you love us, and that's why you care for us. And you care for us through things like pastoring and eldering and, and worship. Lord, you know what we need. You know how to sustain us to the end. So uh, I just pray for these men. I pray if there's any, uh, any, any areas of their heart that just sort of resent the church or, or don't love the church or... Um, Father, maybe they don't love our church. Maybe there's, there's bitterness or, or, or some sort of uh, distance that's been created. Lord, maybe, maybe you are leading them to a new church. I don't know, Lord, but the, the calling here isn't to love Emmaus. The calling is to love your church, Father, your bride, uh, the, the gathering of the body that you've designed as a protection for our soul. So uh, would you help that to exist in all of us and, and to exist strongly and help us to be committed to your word as we seek to lead our families and, and live out our lives faithfully to you. We love you, God. Lead us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all have a great week. And uh, we will see you next week for week eight.